Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hold up, what was that? Boring, no flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. I'm Sheila Shoiga and welcome to Ready to Be Real Conversations. The podcast series where I chat to people of all walks of life. Some names you'll recognise, others you might not. But my hope is that these conversations will at times inspire, challenge, educate, comfort or simply entertain you. In this episode, I speak to dog lover and activist Niall Harbison. I feel so blessed that like it happened. I know this, that's like horrifically hard for my mum and dad or friends to have gone through it. And for me, obviously, but I feel like it's the best thing that's ever happened because once you strip everything away and I, I sort of had a, it's like I got up to the gates of death or whatever you want to call it. And I was like, saw what the meaning of life was. And I was like, okay, like your, your new car, your new iPhone, your new, whatever your designer shoes or whatever. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter mm. one bit. You're in a hospital bed here and they're not the important things. The things I was thinking about was like playing football when I was eight years old, you know, running around the fields. I was thinking about being in Australia backpacking, like sailing on a boat. I was, you know, it was memories that I had. I, like I wasn't sitting there thinking about Jesus. Yeah, that time I got the iPhone 8 or that time I made a nice sale on an advertising campaign, you know, like yeah. none of that was in my head. If you're an animal lover and you're on social media, there's a strong possibility that you already follow Niall. Originally from County Tyrone, he grew up in Brussels and over the past 18 months, he's been devoting his time to helping to save street dogs in Thailand. And to fully understand the man he is today, we need to go back to some of the experiences that have shaped him in his life. When he was 13, his parents separated and his mother had a relationship with an abusive partner which had a massive impact on him. He has been a private chef of billionaires, a successful and at times controversial entrepreneur and at his lowest point he found himself in ICU after a drink and drug fuel binge. He's sober for about two years and nine months now and his mission is to half the population of stray dogs in the world over the next 20 to 30 years. His book, Hope, How Street Dogs Have Taught Me the Meaning of Life, is just out and it's an incredible read. I hope you feel inspired by our conversation as Niall really is the perfect example of how it's never too late to change your life. So a few weeks ago, I was on holidays in Donegal with my family and you sent me a message on Instagram and it was one of those moments where I was just, I was so flattered 
and I was so thrilled that you that you sent me a message because I have been a follower of yours, as are thousands and thousands of people all over the world who follow the brilliant work that you do. And when you said that you were interested in coming on the podcast, that was just a great moment for me. So um, I'm very grateful. Well, Thanks. It's, it's more down to the people who listen to your podcast because I just asked because I've kind of lost touch with Irish media a little bit being away and I was like, you know, who's doing the best podcast at the moment? And I, I swear to God, about 50 people said your name. So that's why I just sent you a little message. And so you're very, you have people out there uh, spreading the word about you. That's so cool. That's so cool. Right. And let's, let's talk about the book. And I suppose the natural thing is to kind of go right, right back to when you were a young lad. So, you know, when people listen to your accent, it's still, it's very strong, despite the fact that you told me in a voice note on WhatsApp that you were only a few months old when you moved to Brussels. Yeah, I think the accent uh, probably gets stronger maybe talking to my parents or even talking to you or anybody back home. But no, I do, I've, I've kept it. I grew up in Brussels, um, but was born in the north in Tyrone. And um, yeah, I've kept the, I mean, all my friends were Irish growing up uh, abroad, but um, yeah, the accent is still there, but it's, it gets stronger, I think, as I, uh, the closer I get to home. You had a, a lovely childhood, very happy childhood. And like a lot of people, the teenage years can be a bit bumpy, can be a bit tricky. Yeah, I mean, my parents just split up, which... Um, I think it just it just sort of hit me quite hard. I think and my mom left, and um, it sort of out of nowhere it just sort of came out. You know, uh, from one day to the next, I didn't see it coming. I think maybe a bit oblivious when you're that age. You think everything's everything's idyllic in your own head, and you know maybe it's not between your parents. And so yeah, they split up, and then my mom uh, moved in with somebody else who was abusive, and I I kind of lived through that, seeing her getting beaten up for want of a better word, and um. Yeah, I always would have had a lot of guilt and um, issues from that moment onwards. I mean, it was, it was I think it was about 13 or so. So it's probably quite a um, you're probably at the age where you're just about to start maybe going out and drinking and maybe not 13, but 14, 15. You know, you're starting to just yeah. figure out who you are. So that kind of rocked my world a little bit and uh, threw me off course a bit. And I was I'd just gone through the sort of divorce and. I just had a lot of guilt for it because like, I mean, I, I still would and I'd be like, why didn't I do something? Or, you know, I was probably hiding in my room. I was hiding in my room. But I was like, why didn't I not just pick up a tennis racket and go and defend her or, you know, do do something? Um, but that's easy to say now. But um, so I, I would have taken it out by going out drinking or, um, you know, finding other ways to deal with it. I just, I just, um, I guess I just, yeah, I always had guilt that I didn't stand up for is that something that stayed with you now, do you think, at this stage in your life? Um, no, I, well, but yes, to a certain extent. But now that I've stopped drinking, I think I've processed it. And some yeah. people will always be like, oh, shit, geez, that's 25 years ago or, you know, maybe more, so nearly 30 years ago. Like, why just, you know, like move on. But seeing your mom getting punched in the face is, uh, I don't know, it's a pretty hard thing to get out of your head. Can't imagine that, yeah. Yeah. And as I say, a childhood lasts a lifetime. So even if it is a long time ago, the experiences that we go through, they stay, they stay with us. Yeah, big time. I think that like I do the dogs now and I know we'll get on to that in a minute, but I'd like, I see such innocence in them and same with children, you know, like they such innocence and they just love playing and, uh, you know, being themselves and, you know, they forget about time and, uh, you know, they're just a pure emotion of happiness. But as, as we get into like 
teenage years, all of us just seem to, maybe not all of us, but we just have so much baggage and so much serious stuff and so much the weight of the world on our shoulders to deal with. We mm. lose that sort of, that sense of fun. And uh, yeah, it, it gets, life gets serious very quickly, not just for me, but for everybody, I think. So that initial phase, I suppose, you when your mother, when your mother left, you were with your dad. Yeah, stayed with him and she, yeah, she went on and lived with um, this other guy for about three or four years, I think, got to three or four years, a bit longer actually, but I, I was there just at weekends, but I like dreaded it, dreaded seeing him. I mean, mm. there was patches where it was okay and he'd sort of, uh, you know, like all abusive people would be nice and apologize and all that sort of stuff. But it was just, uh, yeah, not a very happy time to be, to be growing up really. I would imagine then there was a, a stage where you just wanted to get out. Yeah, definitely. And I started playing up at school big time. I mean, I don't think I was ever incre- incredibly academic or anything like that, but I would have, um, I just, I, I got kicked out of two different schools. I I didn't actually have any qualifications. I failed the same year three times in a row. I think I like, I think I have ADHD, but like they weren't really diagnosing that sort of stuff back then. It wasn't really on the radar, but uh, yeah. I just was terrible in school. And so like my whole world was just um, very turbulent in those years and very upside down. And I, I just didn't know anything. So I turned to like drink and cigarettes and joints and um, all those sort of things, which everybody would have kind of been dabbling in anyway, but I probably already was hitting them a little bit hard. And then chefing became became a, an area that you you went into and i it, what's really interesting about you niall is is you know despite you saying that you know you struggled academically at school which is something that a lot of 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 listeners including myself will resonate with you've also whatever you turn your hand to you make it work i know the, the majority of this conversation is going to be about your incredible work with the dogs of, of thailand but like what you did in your pre-dog life is is really impressive. And I, I say that very genuinely. You seem to just excel in everything that you've done. So with chefing, it wasn't a case that you were working down the local restaurant and tipping away and that was grand. You went to very high levels in your career. Yeah, I mean, I went, I don't know, I'm always very obsessive about things. So like in chefing, I just, I was really lucky because I was, I didn't have anything to do after school. And my dad was, I think his wits, at his wits end trying to figure out what to do with me like set me on right. a course and he he obviously saw me in the kitchen doing something I must have just shown an interest and he was like look why would you would you not go and try and be a chef like I can get you into a course and I went to Cahill Brewer Street uh, Catering College and I loved it I just I was like god this is everything that I like um, not the college a college was like terrible I, I was like you had four hours to make you know a bowl of soup and two sandwiches so I was like really quickly bored but I went to work for Conrad Gallagher, who was, uh, you know, a slightly older listeners might remember, but it was kind of the mm-hmm. place back in the day in Dublin. It was a mad restaurant and it was like Michelin star. And I walked and he's, in. He and was just such a like, character. Oh, he was mental. It was yeah, like, a, yeah. like, actually, really good crack. There was a load of bad stuff <laughs> at the end. Like, I mean, but mm. to, to be around was just insane. Like, I, I just walked in the back door and I was like, look, can I get a job? Um, and it was like, it was on South William Street at the end and uh, at the time and there was I remember walking in and there was like about 20 huge men because like I was just a little 17 year old boy and they were all like running around with knives and like screaming at each other and like <laughs> just madness like absolute madness like kind of Gordon Ramsay if you could imagine 20 of them and they were French and they were just like 
angry and i was like i was like this is brilliant and i just like i was i can't remember what i was paid at the time probably like 50 quid a week or something like minimal like just peanuts but i was down the back like just picking spinach and peeling potatoes and getting screamed at and like you just had to keep your head down and like hope that nobody would like give you a dig in the ribs or you know like it was a different world back then there was um so yeah it was super exciting and i loved it and thrived in it and I think I just I worked my way up in that because I was kind of cheeky or uh, I kind of bypassed the the all the formal training and all that and just um, yeah loved and it. you were it was, good loved the and you were good I don't know if I was even that good I was kind of just cheeky more than I got on like I really? was able like everybody was terrified of Conrad and they'd like they'd literally like go and hide and I'd just be sort of having a laugh at him and slagging him so like he 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 looked after me and okay uh, but no yeah I had a little bit I, I was very determined once I got into it I was very obsessive about things and and I wanted to be as good as possible but I, I was by no means the most talented chef but um I got by and then you went uh working on yachts and again it wasn't a case of you know like it, when you it's kind of a who's who it's all the names of people that you have you know cooked for so am I right in thinking like Tom yeah. Hanks Bono it kind of goes on uh, I get the feeling from from times when you've spoken that you're a bit like yeah I'm not really great talking about this stuff I don't really love talking about that time <laughs> would I be right I don't mind no I don't mind um I'm just not great at talking about myself yeah I think I think like a lot of the times like chef and yeah it does it sounds amazing but like I, so I was working hard graft like peacock Al- yeah really hard graft like unbelievably yeah. so like you're working 16 hours a day and then drinking in the evening and like you're it's not you know it's not cookbooks glamorous. and uh glamorous at all like you're getting mm. screamed at and um but then yeah that's why i actually decided to go and work on the yachts i first did a ski season in france somebody told me they were like oh look there's this job you can go and work in a hotel in france and i was like that sounds great so i went over there and was just cooking really simple food and skiing all the snowboarding all day. And then somebody else was like, oh, there's these yachts down in the south of France that you can work on as a chef. And I was like, right, sign me up. Um, so I went down there and just kind of landed on my feet again and started working for like billionaires as a private chef, which it's more, again, it's more like, it's so easy. Like you're just, you're only cooking for two people or maybe if they have guests, a few people, but like the pressure was gone off the Michelin star restaurants was gone and it was nice traveling the world, cooking for billionaires. So that, that was enjoyable. I'm not going to lie. So while you're away and you're doing this kind of work, do you mind me asking like, what's, what's the environment like at home for your mother? Is she still in that relationship? What's going on? No, she'd actually moved on from that. So my sister had been born with, with that guy, um, and uh, she'd moved on and like we're, we're super close now and like it, it took a while to work it all out obviously you know it wasn't overnight yeah. but he eventually moved on which was you know what we were all saying to do and she she met somebody else really nice and my dad remarried and but I think it had just sort of damaged me from certainly from a relationship standpoint because my mom left my dad sort of you know in the middle of the night or you know it from one day to the next nobody saw it coming and when I was 13 so my relationships with women would always have been like a great relationship. I'm still friends with like all my ex-girlfriends, but just trust issues from like my mom leaving. So I'd never, um, very bad at settling down and uh, uh, keeping a steady relationship going. It makes complete sense. Is that, is is there an element of with the dogs that there's a sense of because dogs by their nature are loyal and steadfast that, you know, they're not going to go, they're not going to leave. The dogs are, the dogs are, 
super friendly, super loyal, super. And that, I, that, that is one of the, I mean, there's a hundred reasons why I like them, but they're so loyal and I do like that. Yeah, that's, I think you hit the nail on the head with that one. Yeah. Right. So, so you're, 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 you know, you're cooking for billionaires and, and that's tipping along, but all the while bubbling in the back is this reliance, I suppose, on, on booze, on drugs, and that's just becoming more of an issue. Yeah, I mean, you get away with it, especially in Ireland, as you know, in your, you know, teens, early 20s in the hospitality industry, like nobody bats an eyelid. Like I was drinking, you know, double vodkas and uh, leucosades and like just mad stuff and shots and all that. And, you know, when you're 20, 23, what, those sort of ages, like it's just the, the done thing or it was certainly was then. We used to go yeah. for a few pints in the afternoon on our split shifts, you know, from during the the working day. And, but I was, you know, like, well, some people were obviously drinking maybe Thursday, Friday, Saturday. I was already drinking, you know, adding a Wednesday and a Sunday night in there or, you know, so, or drinking on my own. And, um, but and, like, I was also having like panic attacks and depression at that stage, but I didn't even know what they were. Like, I had no idea because... Again, it's tw- like, what's that, 25 years ago? Like, not talked about at all, especially right. for, men, yeah. for, for men. And like, there's a lot of great stuff now on mental health. But back then, I was just getting these like anxiety attacks. And I was like, what I thought I was this? having a heart, heart attack. Yeah, I thought like I was yeah. like, Jesus, I must have smoked too many cigarettes or something. I was like, I just had no idea what it was. So all that was, but then I could when you've got depression and stuff like that, you can kind of self-medicate. So if you start feeling a bit anxious, like I would have been, I'd be, I'd have a few pints and then it would be gone. And that I was already self-medicating at that stage without really knowing what was going on. Hmm. And, and and you're so right because like we're the same age and, and I'm thinking back to it myself, like for years during the summer holidays, I was a waitress and, you know, restaurant life. I know I, I wasn't at your level, but like it's, it's, it's busy. It is full on and it's go, go, go until, you know, you clean up the tables and everybody's out and then you go for a few jars or whatever it is. But there is that culture, you know, within that environment as well. And I know certainly and I won't name names, but there were certainly a few chefs that needed a few jars as the night was going on just to keep them tipping along, you know. Um, and that was 100%. that was kind of the culture. Yeah. hundred percent. I've seen chefs like I've seen chefs doing lines of Coke or, or no, it was more like pills back then, I think. Um, or like, yeah, having a like maybe starting to have their pints at about nine o'clock, you know, as the evening's wearing on. And then like, yeah, if you're a waitress or a, even a, a chef or juniors or whatever, like it, you've had a stressful, busy, long day and then somebody puts a nice glass of wine or a pint in front of you at 10 o'clock and your friends are there with you and you're stressed, of course you're going to drink it. And then before you know it, it's 2 a.m. and you're in Reynards or wherever, whatever late bar it is. Because, you know, you've started so late, drink, mm. you're only drinking at 11 o'clock. So it's it's just, a, it's a really, really tough lifestyle. I often wonder, is it changed now? And is there more like, not health and safety, but like, you know, mental welfare and stuff like that. But I'd say, you know, in the restaurant industry, it's probably quite similar. It's a high pressure environment. When you were on the yachts, you decided to have a bit of a career change. So can we talk about that and where you went next? Yeah, so... I loved the yachts and there was a lot of traveling and I had a lot of spare time actually because the guests are not on that much and the internet was just starting. So I was kind of like so much time on the internet. I was kind of teaching myself about Twitter had just started and Facebook and YouTube had just come in and I was like, these things are like 
really incredible. I got the sense at the time. And I, so I just started teaching myself how to do those. And then I was like fed up with the chef. And to be honest, I was like, I wanted just a change. So I got into like online marketing and starting my own businesses and complete, complete 180. Um, I just saw, I looked at the chef and game and I was like, you know, if I, if I was, you know, 50, would I want to be doing this and have kids or anything like that? And I was like, no, this is no life for anybody at that age. So I was like, career change, definitely. Mm. And then obviously, again, like all things you seem to do, you didn't do anything by half. So you just threw yourself into these ideas that you had and then they became these roaring successes. So Love in Dublin is obviously the big one. Yeah, and they're always... Uh, it's like anybody who does anything that's seen as a success you know like when you look at it in hindsight it is but there was so many ups and downs in those years and drunken binges and uh you know it's not easy starting businesses and you know finding capital and failing businesses and you know so uh, if you look at the sort of trajectory now it looks nice and clean and it was a success but uh definitely very very hard um mm. but i i enjoyed those times um and it was I think I'm just always good at um, being in the right place at the right time. That's my skill. If I if I have one skill, it's just I kind of seem to land on my feet. And like when I came into that world, I just had taught myself about social media and everything. And most people didn't know about that yet. Like it's so obvious now. But back then it was like you're on like Facebook. Like what? Like why would we be on that as a business? You know. But so I was just really really lucky. I think in my time and. Yeah, you're very modest, which is a, a really lovely quality of yours. Um, and I can tell that you're like, yeah, at, at times kind of uncomfortable with <laughs> praise or <laughs> let's delve into this and well done now. And you're like, yeah, OK, yeah, let's, let's just move on from this kind of thing. But, um, <laughs> anyway, Love in Dublin, you decided, OK, I've had enough of this. So I'm now going to uh, sell it and, and move on to another chapter. Yeah, I was in Manchester at that time. I did sort of Love in Dublin and then I'd moved over to do Love in Manchester and I can remember the moment clearly like business was going okay. It always looks better on the outside than the inside, but it was like, you know, we're short on cash and, you know, like we're really always struggling uh, to, to grow and all that sort of stuff. And I was suffering a little bit with depression at that time. Well, not a little bit, a lot with depression at the time. And I remember clearly I was walking Snoop, my dog, and it was just those sort of, you know, Dublin or Manchester days where it's dark at four o'clock, it's freezing, like, it was barely bright in the day to start with. And then I just put my foot in a, in a, what I, it looked like a piece of ground, but it turned out to be like an icy puddle. And I like, I just like my whole uh, leg was covered in cold water. And I was just like, I don't know if I can swear, swear on this, but I was just like, fuck this. I was like, I was like, okay, well then I was like, fuck this shite. I was like, I am done with this. I just had to like, just a moment where it was literally in that incident I was like I am leaving this part of the world and going somewhere hot and somewhere where I can work on my health because this is I'm not enjoying this and it was it was within that second that I decided that it obviously took probably four or five months to make it happen but that it was as clear as that and that's where you've kind of been in life you're I, I would imagine you're quite instinctual when something feels you know that like that in that moment that was there was no getting away from i am not happy so i'm going to do something that changes what's making yeah, me unhappy maybe to my detriment i suppose people like certainty and or if you're in a relationship or a family or you know people think things through and whereas i'm just like 
yeah, I probably jump jump in the spur of the moment. But I'm just like, look, I, I could maybe make some more money by staying here or whatever. But like, if I'm this bloody miserable and you know, I, I can't get out of bed in the afternoon because I'm so depressed, uh, I got to I've got to change it. So yeah, I'd always. Apart from now, I don't want to change a thing now because everything. I'm really happy with everything at the moment. Yeah, yeah. But I was just, I, I, and I think I had from just from talk. I, I, I know this from talking to everybody. Everybody kind of goes through phases where they're like, Jesus, what am I doing in this life? Like, what, mm, what's even yeah. the point? What's even the point of going into work or going to, and even nice things like your, you know, your kids or your, you've saved up for a car or whatever. It's you know, like you doing all these things, and then you're just like, Jesus, is this? There's got to be something more than this to life, you know. Like I think everybody yeah. has that deep in, deep inside them. So yeah, I just sort of acted on it, I guess. And maybe you're somebody who just needs sunshine. Also, I mean, do you think you you yeah. you know is it seasonal affective disorder? Do you feel is that is there an element of that? It is, it is definitely. And then I also worked in media in Dublin, which was like. um you might notice like it's sort of like November onwards it's like party season like Christmas starts in about the, like work stops in about the middle of November and everybody is drinking for about six weeks and there's mm. nothing done and like I used to slip into that and there was no excuse no getting away from it the, the nights were short the or the days were short dark everybody drinking and I would just go into a spiral so I used to just clear off for the month of December and go and to thailand because uh, it was sunny and healthy and uh nice cheap food and so that was my escape that's how i kind of started thinking about thailand and then uh made the transition to it full time so initially when you moved to thailand are you were holidaying there was it for the you know the healthy living or was it like for the party element no no definitely for the healthy limit um, okay 100 percent. but i slipped into it i was there and doing quite well you know six months sober or three months or you know a few different patches like that but then what happened was I was going out to the girl Sarah who I'm still good friends with and we had a good relationship and then that sort of broke down and COVID hit which I think hit every couple and every individual like massively you know we're locked in the house and um so she left and a few things just a few things sort of and then I'd know I'd nobody checking up on me like not that I need it, but like I had nobody to say no. You know, you could drink every day, um, and there, you know, like I could start drinking at ten in the morning. There'd be, you, you know, I might have a bit of shame if I was in Dublin doing that. I'd be like, Jesus, if if I'm in this pub and somebody walks in and sees me drinking here at half nine, like that's not a good look. Whereas in Thailand, I'd just be like, ah, everybody's on holiday. Like, sure, I'll just have the pint anyway. I mean, in the beginning stages of COVID, I think it was a coping mechanism for a lot of people was to kind of. I mean, I think a lot of people felt like, okay, it's almost like Christmas holidays. It's a bit like that. Yes. We don't know what day of the week it is. Sure, look at why wouldn't we have a pint or, or a glass or a vodka or a gin or whatever? Because, you know, we don't know what what's around the corner. And there was there was an element of that for a lot of people. So I don't think you were the only one, but yeah. perhaps you maybe well, brought it to, you stepped it yeah, up. Yeah, it's when you're an alcoholic and a situation like that arises, it's like music to your ears. You're like, Jesus, yeah, everybody okay. else is drink, drinking at two in the afternoon. And I'm like, it's now socially acceptable. So let's load the house up with whatever, you know? So, yeah. But uh, look, I, I wouldn't underestimate. I think we've brushed it under the carpet that whole period of time. But like, we were all like, our heads were going clean mad, really, mm. uh, being locked up. So that didn't yeah. help. But that certainly, it certainly wasn't the main reason. But it was just a, another factor that I just went in on almighty binge then and ended up in hospital um so that was that was kind of the start of it and you ended up in icu so it was like it was proper serious oh yeah it was it was horrific like at the end of the binge like it always had binges 
and really bad binges and come downs and stuff like that. But this was like I got to the stage where I was drinking, I'm not joking, about four bottles of wine a day, 10 pints and a bottle of whiskey and then having loads of Valium to just sort of knock the edge off things and like you're probably wondering like that sounds exaggerated like how could you drink that much but like i'd wake up at maybe 4 a.m just within the horrors and i'd have like a bottle of wine just to calm down that would get me you know to maybe seven in the morning then i'd start like having some beers then like i'd be drunk already by 11 a.m so i'd go back to sleep for a few hours then wake up another couple of bottles of wine and i'd be getting drunk sort of four times a day and just having little naps in between so it was, it was and then you'd i'd maybe like try and calm it down so i'd have two valiums just to sleep so it was just uh, it was horrific so I, I went on and on for six weeks and then i just i think it was more a mental breakdown that like there was obviously the physical side of stuff um mm, mm. but i remember about three weeks before i ended up in hospital i just started crying like I'd, I'd cry like anybody, like if there was a dog or, uh, you know, something sad, I'd, I'd have the odd cry, but not much, uh, not not spectacularly. But I, I was sitting like, or walking down the road or sitting in a pub and like the tears would just start coming out of my eyes without anything sad happening. Or I'd be like in a restaurant and I'd just suddenly like be talking to somebody and then I'd feel like the tears streaming down my eyes without anything sad happening. So that was going on for a few weeks. So I think there was obviously something inside my body that was just like like breaking down basically completely yeah. so and then i ended up yeah, in icu which was horrific yeah i like i wouldn't wish it on anybody i i, I mean it's it was like i had to get a friend to come and get me i could, obviously couldn't drive i couldn't i could barely walk i think i think i could walk but it was sort of like and i wasn't drunk at this stage I was, well i was drunk but i wasn't like hammered but like somebody had to like they had to carry me sort of you know like two people uh, carry me into the hospital and then they just immediately started going to work on like yeah drips heart monitors like uh the like i just remember big needles coming in i was so out of it i didn't really know what was going on like big needles injected into my leg with some sort of like i don't know like a camant or whatever you know like something because it's very very dangerous to stop alcohol uh cold like that so the first sort of 48 hours were horrific. I don't know if any anybody who's listening might, might suffer from anxiety. Um, so this was like anxiety, the worst anxiety you've ever had times 100. It was like, you know, like a fly might land on the wall and I'd be like, Jesus, the fly's here to kill me. And or, you know, there was a noise outside and I'd be like, Jesus, that's the police are here because they know I'm on Valium. Or, the, you know, it was just basically the horrors you know the way you'd like you'd have a light hangover on a monday or whatever and you'd be a little bit nervous going into work or uh just just the, the fear but times a hundred so it was yeah. it was horrible and like my, my hands were like claws i was just like my whole body was just like rigid it was, it was yeah. really horrible god it sounds awful it sounds like from what you're saying like it's surprising that you even got that far in a way because of the yeah. amount that you were you were pouring into your body. Well, I think I was trying time. to kill myself more or less, but I'd never be brave enough to do it. But I was like, if I was just drinking like hard whiskey and I was like, look, 
if I drink enough here, it'll numb it and it'll go away. And then maybe with a bit of luck, I won't w- wake up and have to face this tomorrow. Um, that like that's the way I was thinking. But then the thing with alcohol is, as you probably know, if you're hungover, like if you drink enough, the hangover will eventually go. You know, like the cure or whatever you want to call it. Like you know, if you've had a huge wedding and you have you know five glasses of wine, you're going to come around. You're going to f- start feeling okay. So I always knew that, and but this was the first time in my life I ever got to the stage where like three bottles of wine and a bottle of whiskey and I'd still be in the horrors. Mm. I, it just, it wouldn't, I couldn't drink through it. Um, and then I'd have to take two Valiums and then I'd have to like, I was just a mess. Yeah. So when you say that, was that a conscious thing at the, do you think at the time, or was that something that you realized kind of when you look back on the experience that you didn't, you didn't want to be here anymore or was it something you were aware of at the time? Uh, no, I was aware of it. I was aware of it definitely, but I, I mean, that's the clearest mm-hmm. example of being su- suicidal of, you know, it, it really is like a, a, not wanting to wake up and trying to drink yourself to death. But I also was like a bit gutless and spineless that I wouldn't, didn't, wasn't able to do it sort of thing, you know, like I, I did, like I basically it was like a cry for help. Like, you know, I, I think you can look at it now like a, definitely from living my life now obviously didn't want to die but I was just at that stage in my life I was just horrendously miserable so um and and I was just I just wanted to I just wanted to like I have depression I still have it but not not even a hundredth of what it was but when you have depression it's horrendous like it's Mm. it's like a fog and it doesn't lift and then you put booze on top of it it makes it just way worse so it. I was just like, I would anything to escape that um, horrific feeling. So much of the chat so far has has been, you know, on the heavy side, which when anyone follows you, that's maybe not what they're saying, because your account is pure joy and inspiration and love. And it brings so much goodness into the world, you know, what you're doing and even following you. Over the past few days, uh, again, you know, ahead of our chat, I've been following your your journey, leaving Thailand, going to London, organizing the walks. I know you're absolutely exhausted from jet lag and a crazy schedule and you're here talking to me and I'm so grateful. But like a lot of the chat right now is really intense and it must feel like such a long time ago, even though relatively speaking, it's not that long ago that you were lying in that hospital bed and look how you've turned your life around. But I suppose let's 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 come to that moment now where you went, right, this is it. Enough is enough. Or I don't know, is it is it a kind of a, a life flashing before your eyes moment that you go, something's got to give, something's got to change? A hundred percent. Like uh, life flashing before the eyes. A hundred percent. I was like, when I was rigged up to the all the machines and stuff, I was like, okay, in 10 seconds, I'm going to die. Like there's no doubt. The way my body was feeling. And then I was like... In a minute's time, I'm definitely going to die. So when you're when you're in that stage, you start thinking about what you've done and everything you've achieved. And I was like, okay, I've been a chef. I've been away from my family. I haven't had good relationships. I did, like people are said you're successful, and I was like, what? Like you've you've had like some little media company in Ireland where you just like sold some advertising or you know moved some numbers around spreadsheets. I was like, nobody is going to remember you beyond your immediate family i was like in two weeks time you'll be you know be like that guy lovely fella that was our friend but he drank himself to death and you know that was it and i was like that's that's no way to have lived your life so i was like 
I started slowly saying like, if I can get through this next sort of, it was minute by minute at the time. I was like, if I can get to, you know, five to nine or whatever time it was on the big clock on the hospital, I was like, then I'll see if I can think of a bit more of a plan. And I was, I was like, if I get through this, everything changes, everything changes. So I was talking to myself through it. Um, and yeah, it was, it was that, it was like, and I'm, I feel so blessed that like it happened. I know this, that's like horrifically hard for my mom and dad or friends to have gone through it. And for me, obviously, but I feel like it's the best thing that's ever happened because once you strip everything away and I, I sort of had a, it's like I got up to the gates of death or whatever you want to call it. And I was like, saw what the meaning of life was. And I was like, okay, like your, your new car, your new iPhone, your new, whatever your designer shoes or whatever. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter mm. one bit. You're in a hospital bed here and they're not the important things. The things I was thinking about was like playing football when I was eight years old, you know, running around the fields. I was thinking about being in Australia, backpacking, like sailing on a boat. I was, you know, it was memories that I had. I was, like, I wasn't sitting there thinking about Jesus. Yeah, that time I got the iPhone 8 or that time I made a nice sale on an advertising campaign, you know, like yeah. none of that was in my head. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. It's amazing stuff, Niall, because a lot of us um, have had moments in our lives where we do gain perspective, but perhaps not in as severe a situation as yours. And the majority of people won't, thankfully not, because that's a scary place to be. But I suppose, isn't it wonderful that a really traumatic experience that you went through and a really scary one becomes a blessing and becomes a gift in your life and one that you can draw on and, and do good with. Do you know the way when you're like, Maybe you go and you get really fit. You get fit for six weeks or something, or you, and then you're like, Jesus, I'm never going back to that way again. Where you know, eating the chocolates and the, the burgers and or whatever. And then, of course, you do it a couple of weeks later. Or maybe you're, you know, you get sick and then you're lying in bed and you're like, Jesus, I need to start being healthier and eating vegetables or whatever. You know. Whereas this was just like an extreme version of that. It was like Jesus, like I will never drink in my life again, and I know it. Um, so it was just, yeah, an extreme version of, of that feeling is what I've got. How long are you sober now? Uh, two years and like nine months. And I don't even Brilliant. really count anymore, to be honest. It's, yeah, um, I'm very blessed. That's a great place to be also, isn't it? That you're not kind of having to focus on it. I just need to be careful because I suppose there's other people like depression is still very, you can never really get rid of it. And if I stop doing the things that make it 
like if I start drinking again, I could end up in that place. So yeah, you just you just need to be very mindful. Never take for granted. Like I always. No, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Okay, so um, you got better, and you were able to leave the hospital. What happens next? Yes. Oh well, like a complete idiot. I got like it was three days in the hospital, I think, and I got out, and I swear to God, I got home. And like, obviously my body had been through like a once in a lifetime experience. And I like, I got home to the uh, little apartment I live in and I went for a jog, right? So like, this is okay. like, <laughs> what not to do. Like, yeah. I got 500 yards down the road and like, I nearly had to go back to the hospital again, okay. but I was just so oh, keen. I was so, I was so keen to just like get healthy. Um, yeah. that that was the stupidest decision I've ever made. What actually happened was it took, I'm not joking you about six months to get over it. Because like yeah. I said, I think it was a, uh, like a mental breakdown or for want of a better word. Like I obviously got in, I had like, I couldn't remember my email password or, you know, like your banking, like passwords that you would just, you couldn't forget, you know, like that you've had your whole life for. And I was trying to, and I was like, I can't even remember these numbers. My brain was just mush. Um, yeah. So it took me yeah. a long time to, there was months of sitting around like, uh, watching like Netflix and going for walks and but I was still very very anxious and like the first two to three months were still physically very tough because I think there was just so much um crap to come out of my body that I, I wasn't really able to do this you know my my mind was quite good but my body just wouldn't wouldn't do anything that I wanted it to yet. So were you doing this on your own or were you getting help? As in, were you in rehab or were you doing any therapy or was it just, I have this, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to deal with this myself. I probably shouldn't say this because I think the proper way to go is rehab and get help and professional help. So I don't want to like put people off that, but I didn't do anything. I did it all on willpower and that was really scary for like Sarah, who's my ex-girlfriend who's trying to help me and family and friends they were trying to check me into places and you know all that sort of because they were like look he's just been in hospital nearly died he's obviously going to be back there in a couple of weeks but I I just knew in my own head I I couldn't explain it to anybody I I was like I am I'd never felt like that I was like I'm done that's it I'm changing everything and I'm never going back to that place so like I couldn't I was really tough time conveying that to other people because they were so worried but I was just like yeah I just did it all myself on willpower which I genuinely don't want to like endorse that i don't think that's the way to go <laughs> but it's your truth and it's inc- it's incredible yeah. so um yeah. like absolute respect um so yeah after the, the six month period then kind of building yourself back and, and at this stage you're you're feeling good yeah feeling brilliant starting to do sports and stuff like that and just just rebuilding the body basically and um eating healthy and I remember like I was making porridge one day after about six months and I was like putting honey on top of it and I like put a little bit too much and I was like, Jesus, you're going a bit hard on the honey now, aren't you? And I like, I caught myself and I was like, <laughs> I was like, that that was like 40 Marlboro lights a couple of months ago. So like I, I went yeah. to the other extreme and got, got as healthy as I could. Yeah. So um, let's, let's talk about the dogs. Let's talk about Lucky. I'd always kind of fed dogs in Thailand a little bit because there's so many street dogs. Really hard for anybody who's not been in that part of the world to understand, but there's, you know, thousands. And I'd fed some here and there. But then I was kind of looking around because I'm obviously like, what, 41, 42 at that stage. And I'm like, 
all this new energy in life and I'm like, I need to do something. I had no idea what to do. No idea. Not a blank canvas. I was thinking of all sorts of things like anything, but then I just started feeding lucky on the way home from football one night. It was a street dog and I fed her. And then the next morning I woke up and I was like, cause she was a little bit away, like 15 minutes away. I was like, Jesus, she needs food again today. So I went back and fed her again. And then, uh, that quickly sort of accumulated to about four dogs in her area. And I took her for a vet visit to just clear up some little issues she had. And then from there, it just snowballed. I just started going back to them every day. It was a nice little routine. And then it was eight dogs and then a 20. And then suddenly before I knew it, I was feeding 80 dogs every single day, which was just off my moped. I'd just go and buy a big bag of food in the shops and go around feeding them. And I felt, felt uh, terrific, felt like really just, nice uh you know rewarding it was really nice feeling and like when you think about it it's still a relatively short time that you've been doing the work that you're doing now and the massive change and the difference that you're making and and in terms of the following that you've created is is really remarkable isn't it i mean is it is it about two years that you're doing this it's actually only 18 months it's like january last year yeah wow I i just can't get my head around it like yeah i I think because I like I deleted all my social media profiles because I was just getting myself into trouble, getting like hammered and then like going on Twitter and stuff like after four bottles of wine, you're not going to come out with like very wise stuff. So I deleted yeah. all my social media profiles and then I started them again just for the dogs. And I, I, I really thought I'd, like a, a few thousand people might be interested, like friends and family. I had no idea what it what it would become or what it was um but yes 18 months now and from what i can see as well on your instagram alone like you're you're gaining like uh thousands of followers on a, on almost a daily basis it's growing growing all the time it's it's like mental like i i can't like it's like an outer body experience or something like i don't know i just look at it and i'm like i walked into like hyde park the other night and i just messaged and i was like if anybody wants to come to for a dog walk and me and megan who helps me uh we're on the way down there and we're like oh they're like we're having little bets we're like i was being like i'm always stupidly optimistic but i was like i I bet you there's going to be 50 people there like you know like it looks i think you know we're counting people we knew and stuff and we got into hyde park in london i don't know anybody in london really like three people and there was like at least three four hundred people there and it was just they were just like so they knew all the dogs names and they knew like i just i it's like like i said an out-of-body experience i just don't understand how it's uh got like this i think it, i think i do understand i think it's because it's like positivity in a world where there's a lot of negativity and there's a lot of um yes you know cost of living crisis wars uh there was covid there was just like every time you go online everything's negative and also everybody instagram is quite fake you know there's a lot of everybody putting their best foot forward whereas i just Absolutely. kind of just say what is on my mind so i think i think that's why people like it but it's still like uh, I'll have to go home next week and sit down for uh, in a dark room for two days and try and process it. To be honest, yeah. Well, I suppose you 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 did speak about that moment of of wanting to find purpose or meaning, and and you found it in in the purest form that you're actually making a, a such a huge difference. And and as you said, people are following you not just for you, but your dogs, the dogs are characters in their own right and people like to follow their stories and their journeys and then they're with you every step of the way 
when, you know, there's there's a high moment and unfortunately and inevitably there can be plenty of low moments as well. And when you love something so dearly, you connect with a someone, be it a person or an animal when they're not there anymore. My God, does it hurt? And you've had a lot of you've had a lot of that recently yourself. Yeah, there's two dogs who died who I have that are like super special. Snoop, who is my own dog, who I got in uh, the DSPCA, I think it is, just outside Dublin. So I had him 12 years and he came to Manchester and Thailand with me. So he died about 10 days ago. And Tina, who was just an incredible soul, who was a golden retriever. She was on a chain and uh, we saved her. But then, and she's had the most lovely six months, but then she got kidney disease and died. So... Two very sad stories, but also like I'm sitting here talking to you and I can't even explain it. There's like paintings, T-shirts that people have made me uh, like not mass cards, but like just like a, a handful of like cards that people have given me about these dogs that they've never met. So it's a really I try and make it just as upbeat as positive. And that is real life. Like, you know, people die, dogs die, people are sick, people and Instead of glossing over it, I just try and sort of um, explain it how it is and put a positive spin on it. So, yeah, there, there's a lot of sadness, but also there's a lot of joy in it as well. You seem really pragmatic um, about, I suppose, the, the cycle of life that everybody yeah. has a beginning and, a, and an end and that it's part and parcel of it. Well, that's the one thing I said to myself if I was going to like, I, I'm going to be back in a hospital bed again, you know, like I was. And hopefully it's in like, you know, 30, 40 years when I'm 80 or something, you know, like I, I and I die in my sleep. Like that's that's what I want. That at some stage I'll be back there. And 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 genuinely, if it happened, if I walked out and I got hit by a bus today and I died, I could actually say like, now I'm really proud of myself. And I've lived like I wouldn't I wouldn't want to be doing anything other today than, you know, like talking to you, meeting people about dogs, spreading the word. I, I just for the first time in my life, I'm like proud of myself and before I wasn't so I'm just living the life that I love living and that's that I think that's I'm I'm very conscious that I'm blessed to be in that position so x amount of years ago you were saying you know you might wake up before and down a bottle of wine and as it would go throughout the day now you're now obviously your day looks entirely different so can you go through like a typical day in 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 your world now when you're when you're back home in Thailand yeah, well, there's there's two things. So, like, I love the dogs in Thailand, and if I if I like, my mission is to save millions of them around the world. And it, my ideal day would be not to do that. It would be just to go out of my moped in my flip flops, feed my own dogs that I have, potter around, play with them, do that sort of stuff. Unfor- not unfortunately, but the reality is that if I want to save millions, I need to bring people on the journey with me i need to raise awareness i need to do mm. boring things like raise money and do accounting and all those sort of things that that, that are going to be a big organization so i do a bit more of that now like this is a, i'm here in the uk and ireland for a week and i'm doing like media interviews like this i'm meeting people sure. but my my heart is out on the moped feeding the dogs and i'll never ever stop doing that so like I'm already excited for Wednesday morning. I'll be loading up the food, going out, feeding the dogs because that that's just good for the soul. That's where my um, where my heart really is. But I, I do I, the bigger mission is very important as well. Yeah. So, how many dogs do you have 
yourself now? I know rehoming is, is a big element and I know that another vital part of what you're doing is is sterilizing the dogs so that, you know, these vast numbers of stray dogs reduce, which is obviously ultimately the most important thing also. Yeah, so there's 500 million in the world, dogs, stray dogs, believe it or not. And my wow. aim my aim is to half that over the next 20 or 30 years. So I want to um, control the population. So 250 million. So I spend most of my time feeding them. I feed 800 at the moment. There's a little Thai woman who cooks the food for 800 dogs and then volunteers give it out all around the island. And then uh, I do obviously like medical stuff. So helping dogs with broken legs and stuff like that. But then we also sterilize 200 dogs a month at the moment. But that's... So that's good. That, that'll stop like a few thousand puppies each month coming into the world. But I really need to scale that up into like thousands of dogs being done every month. So it's like we're just saying there, it's it's so short. But at the same time, I'm kind of like, I feel like I'm going really slowly only because I see the suffering that they're in every day. Like, you know, there's dogs suffering today that I could do something about. So, yeah, I'm trying to speed everything up. Are there certain dogs now when you're away that you, I mean, it's a strange question to ask because I know you love them all and you're you're going to try and help them all. But I'm sure there are certain, there are certain dogs that you spend maybe perhaps a bit more time with or you've had more of a connection with. Like, are you, are you missing some more than others at the moment? Big time. Like there's, there's, you're not, I'm obviously not allowed to have favorites. Like that would be, <laughs> I would be, it'd be like say having favorite kids or whatever, but I, I do have secret favorites, of course. Uh, no, but yeah. the good thing is I, I met some of them here, which was incredible. Uh, there yeah. was like five of them that have been rehomed here. And that was just like an eye opener for me because um, they're just in happy houses here and like they've come across the world and it just doesn't feel real. So um, yeah, I do miss them. They're like, it's like having about 80 kids uh, and they've all got their little personalities and quirks and um, yeah, I'll be very excited to see them again. Yeah, you were on this morning, ITV's this morning during the week and I saw a reunion and it was clearly a very emotional moment for you. Did you have no idea that was happening? No idea. Like I couldn't, I, I, I couldn't process it. And I was like, I was going on and like the happiest, I was like, this is all brilliant. And like, you know, just looking around, I was looking around the studio and I was just like, oh, this is, you know, so interesting and everything. And then like, I, yeah. like crying or anything like that wasn't even my like, and it was the happiest tears that I've ever had in my life. I was just like, this dog, Hope was like, I found her in the jungle and like, she'd been shot with a nail gun. She'd been uh, cut with a machete. I took, like I sat with her up in the jungle for like trying to rehabilitate her for months. Like she wouldn't even, I had to lift her to the toilet. She was, she was just like a rock. She was closed down. And um, I think it's say in the book that it, it kind of reminded me of my mom, like, you know, being abused and, I was kind of like, at least this time I did something, uh, you know, I stepped mm. up to the plate and helped, helped little hope. So when I saw her, she was coming out of the the studio and with Steph, her lovely owner, and she was just walking through and I was like, holy shit, this like, this was the dog who's in the jungle. And now she's like, here she is walking out in front of a TV audience. I was just like, this can't be real life. Like this is, this is like, this is just mad, you know? So uh, I felt just overcome with emotion. Yeah. And what was really gorgeous uh, watching it as well was um, Hope's reaction to you. Because obviously a dog is not aware of a TV studio and cameras watching and they're not going to, I'm going to, I'm going to put it on now for the cameras. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She was <laughs> yeah, yeah, so yeah, yeah. happy to see you and that the tail is wagging and it was, it was, it was beautiful. It was a real privilege to witness a, a very genuine moment 
uh, between between you both. Yeah. And I did. They they had other dogs there to surprise me after about five of them. And I, I genuinely, because I haven't seen them in about five months, I think, four, three, four, five months, some of them. And I, I, I like dogs do forget stuff like that. So I was kind of wondering myself, I was like, are these dogs even going to remember me? But they did. Uh, so I was like, that made me feel, feel good. I mean, I don't. Yeah, it's, people are always like, oh, geez, the dogs remember that you saved them and stuff like that. I don't know if dogs are that smart, but they definitely remember the smells or the, you know, the the, the belly rubs or the treats I gave them. So as as uh, it makes you feel lovely. Yeah. So you have these huge plans, which is admirable, and just going on your on your back catalogue, as it were, I have a, a strong sense, a feeling that it's gonna it's gonna it's gonna work. You're gonna you're gonna succeed at what you plan on doing. Um, but does that mean then that, you, that there'll come a day when you're going to say goodbye to Koh Samui and, and leave Thailand? I don't think so. Um, I think I can do it from there, but I think I, I'm going to have to travel more. But it's like I have a huge philosophical debate in my, like even this book is brilliant. And I, I but I thought long and hard about it because I got like loads of offers to, you know, like promote pet insurance or you know anything stuff like that anything to make money and I was just said no to everything and then I was like I'll do the book because I think it'll get the word out there and I think it can raise some money for it to help me and I think but then I'm like even this week I've been away for a week and I'm like is this in my mind I'm like is this helping the dogs or is it should I be on the ground doing stuff and like it is helping the dogs when I step back because you know there's a whole new audience that will know about street dogs and help with my mission but I think about everything just about what will help the dogs the most and it's not always easy to make those decisions but no I think I can do it from Kosamui with some travel dotted in there but and it's not yeah I've it's not a guaranteed success it's a very very hard problem to solve and very um like logistically challenging etc but i'll give it a good shot mm. and, and obviously a huge factor involved is the financial aspect because you know feeding that amount of dogs and even vet visits and sterilization you, you can't do it with with no funds so obviously getting people to support what you're doing is, is a key part of of having the buzz online and sharing what you do on on likes of instagram and all the other social media platforms so I will add in your link into the show notes if people want to get on board and, and support what you do. But what are you looking at financially? How much does it cost, say, on a weekly basis to do what you do at the current level? It started off really cheap. It was like, it's cost me about two or three grand a month. It's not really cheap. That's a lot of money. But it was like to feed the, the 800 dogs was about three grand a month. But what really costs a lot, yeah, is the operations. Like if a dog breaks a leg, it's, it's kind of like, you know, European prices, it might be 500 or a thousand euros to fix a, you mm. know, to get an operation. And I can't, you, unfortunately, you have to go around choosing then. You can't just go around fixing every dog who gets a broken leg because you you wouldn't have the money. So um, what I do is I like, I actually don't ask anybody for donations. Like, and I think that's good because I think, you know, when you go onto Instagram or Facebook or stuff, you see a lot of shocking images and stuff and, you know, people, charities asking for money. And I, it kind of tur- not turns me off, but I'm just like, I think people are kind of don't want to see it. It's like out of sight, out of mind, you know, they don't want to see dogs with their legs broken and stuff like that. So I, I just try and tell positive stories. And if people figure out uh, that they want to follow along and uh, donate or help, it's great. But it's not, it's not, I don't force anybody. They can just watch the dog content and be happy. That's the way I think about yeah. it. Um, And then I think 
to do big things like hosp- I need to build hospitals and stuff like that. Like I need to get big corporate, uh, you know, big money sponsors and stuff like that, which I think I'll be able to do. So, um, it's all still moving parts in my head, but I'm, I'm, I'm doing okay. People are very helpful, and it's not just money. It's like people adopting dogs, people sending me nice things like leads and bandanas and stuff. There, uh, people are unbelievable, basically. So you're you're giving all the time. You're helping all the time. Your schedule at the moment is is a lot of promo, obviously, for the book. And there's all this output, output, output. But are you are you able? Are you good at taking time out for you and just saying, right, I need a I need a bit of me time that is just me doing my own thing or or taking a nap Terrible. or as you said, okay. Terrible. Like really bad. But last night I actually there was like the the audience is actually quite a lot of women and it's mostly like uh there's a lot of sort of like mammies who who love the dogs. It's really funny and I was doing the book signing last night and I'd say there was about 80% of them were, were older women or women. And I swear to God, every single one like just pulled me aside like a, a, an Irish mommy would and just was like, Niall, will you please just take a bit of time for yourself? You're really going very hard, you know, like, will you just have a little nap and just, we won't, we won't mind if you just, if you don't post for a day, just like, take, please look after yourself. So people are like really, really nice about that sort of stuff. But it's hard when there's so many nice things happening and it's exciting and uh, but yes I, I, I'll be useless to everybody if I didn't take a bit of time off so I'm gonna try and do that from now on yeah because I think I saw it was I might have been even yesterday where you hadn't eaten all day so I think yeah <laughs> factoring in yeah, important just, things like sleep and eat and rest exactly I just forgot yesterday literally forgot I was just so busy but no I, I'm, I'm not too bad I'm I, need to get into exercise and stuff because it's it's mental health as well you need to look after yourself definitely so your family and your close your close circle of friends it's it's probably an obvious answer but um how do they feel about this phase in your life where you're at now they must be they must be thrilled relieved proud and um just happy that you're in such a good place yeah, I think they're just all like, yes, yes, they definitely are because they're so, you know, I worried them sick, you know, like because also I was in Thailand and, you know, if you're an alcoholic, you don't have to, it's easy not to answer their phone calls or whatever, you know, so and that, that would make the worry worse. But I think they're proud now. Yeah, I think they're sort of like, especially my friends, they're just in in disbelief they're like they're they're keeping me nice and grounded they're like you know we, we know you're we know you're still a still an annoying bollocks or whatever i'll get messages from my friends uh they're, they're like so they they keep me nice and nice and grounded so um yeah no they're, they're i think especially my mom and dad because like i wrote about that in the like uh, their relationship and how it affected me so like you know i don't want them to feel guilty people just grow apart and stuff so um yeah, I uh, I'm in a very fortunate place at the moment. Hmm. And to write such an honest book that takes a lot of courage, not just for you but also for the people that you're writing about. Did you have that that chat with them? Look, guys, I'm 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 doing this thing. I'm going to write my story, and it's obviously going to involve you guys. So you know, are we cool with this? Or did you get their approval in advance? Or how did that work? Yeah, I I sort of chatted them through it. I'd, I actually wrote it and then um, showed them. Um, and 
like it's all just the truth so it's but yeah it's hard sometimes just just writing that out and it's hard being so honest in a book like that was one of the most exhausting things ever writing that because it was just like it was like going to therapy sessions or even the, yeah. the worst thing was like i had to read the audio version of the book and it was in a studio in bangkok and there was like four sound engineers listening in and i'm there reading about you know having a breakdown or my mom leaving me or whatever and i'm like and they're like can you just read that in a slight different tone and i'm like yeah and i came out of that like just exhausted um (gasps) yeah exhausted so um but no it's all good it's all good yeah well it must be a good feeling now that it's done and you're on this stage of just talking about it that it's uh it's it's out there in the ether and for those who, who are listening who don't already have a copy and are itching to get it it's called hope how street dogs taught me the meaning of life a glorious, a glorious read because you take people on on the highs and lows of your life, and ultimately, it's incredibly inspiring, and it gives us a lot of you know food for thought of what are we doing in our own lives? Like, what am I doing? What what is this about? This life that I'm leading, and how you can actually completely change your circumstance and do something utterly unexpected that fills you up, but also potentially helps others. And I suppose isn't that the real true meaning of life we you know people are always talking about you find something you're good at and you can do that that's great you know you can pay the bills and you live a nice life but when you find something that not alone are you good at but helps others or serves others or does good in the world that's that's that step up that's that elevated level of right now this really matters what i'm doing really counts and you're doing that yeah and I think the one thing that I'd say to people is like, I'm 43 now. I was an alcoholic and depressed for like 25 years. And, you know, I was doing all right in life, but I was like miserable. So like, it's never too late. You know, a lot of people look at their situation and they're like, oh, Jesus, you know, it's passed me by or I have kids or I'm, you know, I went to college or what, you know, it's never too late. You know, it's just, just, you can always make a change. There's hope for everybody. Niall, thanks a million. It's been brilliant to talk to you. Oh, thank you so much. Great to hear voice from home. What can I say about that episode? Niall Harbison is such a great guy. And if you enjoyed our conversation, please spread the word. Let your family and friends know about it. You can pop it up on your social media accounts if you feel like it. And you can support what I do in all the usual ways by clicking follow, giving a rating or leaving a little comment. I'd be so grateful. Next week, I'll be speaking to Buddhist monk Gilang Tupton. You've been listening to Ready To Be Real. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.
This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.